Muhammad Ali, formerly Cassius Clay from Louisville, uh, was considered uh, the greatest heavyweight boxer of all time. Matter of fact, Sports, sports uh, Illustrated considered him the sportsman of the century uh, in its edition in uh, 1999. Uh, and uh, th- uh, this greatness was not lost on Muhammad Ali himself. Uh, he is famous for his quotes. As a matter of fact, one of his nicknames was the Louisville Lip. So uh, he was often boasting about himself. One of his famous quotes is, I float like a butterfly, I sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. <laughs> you know, uh, that was uh, pretty famous. One of the less famous is, uh, quotes is this, it is hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Well, we've probably known people like Muhammad Ali, and we've seen people come and go over the years who who do that kind of boasting, boasting in their strengths. I mean, Muhammad Ali really was an amazing boxer, right? But one of the things we're going to learn from Holy Scripture is, is the power of boasting in our weaknesses. You see, if you think you are strong, you think you've got your act together, you think that, uh, that you just make occasional mistakes, but basically you're really a great person, you don't need a savior. The only people who come to know Jesus Christ are those people who realize we are weak and we are doomed without the grace of God. The Apostle Paul in his continuing combat uh, of the uh, false teachers in Corinth is going to give us a rather lengthy explanation of his resume in some ways. But it's a resume of weakness of showing just how different he is from these self-styled super apostles who brag so much about their qualifications. And as we look at this passage, my hope is that we will learn to boast in our weaknesses because we're actually boasting in the power of our God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in faith, we turn to you and we ask God that you would reveal yourself to us in your scripture. Uh, scripture can be difficult for us to understand, and the Apostle Paul seems sometimes just to add clause on top of clause on top of clause. So we ask, God, that you would show us these truths, apply these truths to our hearts. Let us learn the wonderful lesson of humility, and let us not be those who speak about how wonderful they are, but realize the great weaknesses that we have have brought about our salvation because we have been able to recognize God's grace in our lives. Be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to actually look at a a fairly lengthy passage, and it was just... Uh, it was one of those passages that if, if I broke it up too much, it might be artificial because Paul's trying to make this whole point through uh, 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen through 12, uh, 4. And you might find your home group's help insert of assistance uh, for you today as we kind of break down the various components here. But we're going to see uh, Paul's foolish contrast with the false teachers. Then we're going to see Paul's pedigree, Paul's persecutions. Paul's perils, Paul's pastoral burdens, Paul's particular example, and Paul's prophetic version is how we're going to uh, close things out uh, this morning in that amazing text where he was actually taken up into heaven uh, and heard indescribable words. So let's begin here with Paul's foolish contrast with false teachers, and I'm just going to read each passage as we go to its particular part here. Uh, beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse uh, 16, God says, Paul writes, Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I will, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. 
Since many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. So again here, Paul is trying to address the, the so-called self-side super apostles. They have this mix of Jewish background and they bring in some Greek philosophy and a sprinkling of, of other things. And they've utterly confused the Corinthians and they've pulled them away, uh, not only from loyalty to Paul, the man who planted the church, who gave them the gospel, but also from the gospel itself. Because if you're not following Paul and what Paul teaches, you're not following the gospel. Paul is the greatest theologian of Holy Scripture. So he, they, they pulled away here and basically they, they, they are boasting. They're comparing themselves. They're giving their resume, their credentials against the Apostle Paul. So they're like Muhammad Ali. We're saying we're the greatest apostles in the world. What does Paul have uh, against us? So Paul kind of takes him to task. But he does just the opposite of what, uh, of what they do. He even says here, I say this again. Now, this again goes back to verse 1 of chapter 11. And then after that, he kind of has a parenthesis where he talks about financial numeration and how he didn't charge them anything to bring the gospel, whereas these other people are just bleeding them dry with all of their, uh, their charging of their sophistry and their speeches and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so he's basically say, uh, he's saying he, he, he is regarding what he's having to do, this foolishness, which is something he doesn't want to do as foolishness, but he's trying to distance himself from the real fools here. He says, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me as foolish, so that I may boast in a little. So he basically wants to defend his ministry by presenting his resume, and he's kind of forced to do this. He has to make a defense here. Uh, but his boasting, again, is bo boasting not on pride and all of the wonderful things he's accomplished, but all the difficult things that he has gone through uh, in his particular life. You know, the reason why he just hates this idea of boasting, but he's willing to do it, is because he knows the Lord didn't boast. The, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to Philippians 2, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, uh, made humility just the aspect of his life. It was a character quality of his entire life. God himself became a poor man in order to bring the gospel to us, in order to be nailed to a cross, in order to save us. So we would all want to be more like that. But every now and then, it is necessary to boast. But for the Christian, for the mature Christian in particular, it is possible to boast without the sin of pride when you have to make a defense here. So Paul's kind of being sarcastic here. He's saying here, for you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. He's kind of, again, he's sort of poking fun at the Corinthians to get their attention that they are, they are tolerating very foolish people here. And he's making a defense of himself here. So there's an urgency here because the gospel is at stake. And if it falls in Corinth, it may fall in, in all of Greece here. And he even gives an example of the things that they're tolerating. You tolerate if someone enslaves you, devours you, takes advantage of you, uh, or exalts himself, or even hits you in the face. That's kind of a shocking statement, isn't it? Hitting you uh, in the face. This idea of devoured means that they've plundered them financially. They've taken advantage of them. They've enslaved them. That, that idea in the Greek is that they've been caught like an animal in a trap. He's trying to get them to wake up. 
If any of you have ever had a close friend who's been in an abusive situation, you can relate a little bit to the Apostle Paul. Uh, there are times when people get so used to the abuse, it's all that they know, it's what they're used to, it's what they're comfortable with. And sometimes you have to kind of go in and tell them to wake up to what's going on here. And that's what Paul is trying to do to the Corinthians here. But now, whether they actually physically struck them in the face or he's using that as a, a, a metaphorical phrase, you know, we're not exactly sure. But but it's important to know this, too, is this sort of abuse of power in the church is rampant even today. And it's evil. And it's one of the reasons why we had the Protestant Reformation. You had just such profound abuse uh, of the congregants coming from coming from Rome, even within the dictates and the doctrines of the church at the time, uh, where people were just being abused by clergy, or, 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 or the clergy were unregenerate or illiterate, and they were just there you know, because their, their position had been bought, and the poor per people suffered, and the gospel was being extinguished. Well, the reformers stood up and they said, no, unchecked authority is a dangerous, dangerous thing. One of the things that we're going to teach on our Sunday nights is the reason why we have a Presbyterian form of government. And this is one of the reasons why it, it, it well, if I could say it this way, it keeps me from abusing you as the pastor of this church. I, ha I am one of five elders that have the same vote. Now, I'm in a sense first among equals and that I do this as a as my full-time job, I am the, the preaching pastor, the preaching elder of this church. Nevertheless, there's just an automatic accountability because it recognizes the sinful nature of people. This is one reason why there have been so many sexual abuse cases in the Catholic Church is because you are just supposed to trust these priests uh, without qualification and do whatever they say, and, and many of them regrettably had taken advantage of them. Now, there's no doubt some good and very holy people as well, but the, whole, the system is just flawed. It just leaves people unchecked. Well, that's what was happening in Corinth. These people were abusing the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were welcoming it. And Paul, in a sense, is now, in a, in a sense, giving them a wake-up call. He's throwing water on them and saying, wake up. Not only are you being hurt, you're going to kill the gospel in Europe. If you allow this kind of abuse, he's bringing in a little mini, in a sense, if you could say this, a Protestant Reformation to, uh, to help overturn what was going on here. So then he goes on now, he's, he's got to, uh, he's going to explain his basically his qualifications now. So Paul lays out aspects of his qualifications as the truth-telling, Jesus-loving, God-serving apostle that he really is. And he starts off with his pedigree in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Now again, one of the advantages or disadvantages of, of an epistle is you're only getting part of the, the story. You're getting the response, right? So you can look at this and you can assume that these False teachers were therefore boasting about their Jewish heritage and they were comparing it to the apostles Paul's Jewish heritage, which is a big mistake, by the way. But, but they, were, they were out there saying that they're, oh, we're Hebrews, we're Israelites, we're descendants of Abraham. And the apostle Paul is, they've got nothing on me. They have nothing on me. This emphasis on Hebrew, that's our, our descendants of Eber. If you look at the genealogies in 11, uh, Genesis chapter 11 here, uh, they probably were saying, oh, Paul, no, 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 he was born in Asia. He's not a real Hebrew like we are. He's one of those kind of Greekish Hebrews. Now, he was born in Tarsus, but he moved to Jerusalem, and he was discipled by the greatest rabbi, rabbi at the time, uh, Gamal, which Paul actually doesn't even mention. But he tells the Philippians that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, reminding them of that. 
pedigree. So Hebrews kind of emphasizes the biological blood pedigree, but Paul was also an Israelite, a descendant of Jacob or, or Israel. The idea of being sons of Israel uh, is mentioned 600 times in the Old Testament. So God did, began his program by saving a particular people, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the tribes, working through that particular people. And Paul can take his pedigree all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Jacob, or who was later named uh, Israel here. So the Israelite emphasis here is on this religious pedigree. Paul kind of sums up, in a sense, the advantages of being a Jew in Romans chapter 9. And uh, and he kind of lists out some of those advantages. Uh, He says here, these are are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to? To the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. You know, it's, it really is, in a sense, an advantage to have been a Jew. Uh, because when Paul would go with the Gentiles, he'd have to start from the beginning. He'd have to go back to Genesis. He'd have to explain things. He'd go, have to go back to Isaiah. He'd have to go back to the Psalms. He'd have to explain what God's program and how it started. For the Jew, they practically had that stuff memorized. They had the temple service. They saw all the blood and they could see, they could make the connection through the power of the Holy Spirit with the blood that was given on the cross. And yet, most of them did not accept Christ. Indeed, they persecuted the church. And I'll be honest with you, I think when you know more and you reject what you know, you're going to be under a a, a stiffer judgment than someone who is just completely ignorant of what it is that they're rejecting. But by and large, there's an advantage here. So he's emphasizing his religious pedigree, but he also was a descendant of Abraham. And here is the emphasis on the covenant that was given to Abraham, that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So the false prophets cannot claim to be better off in terms of pedigree than the apostle Paul. He reminds the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4 that he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to the righteousness which was in the law, found blameless. Found blameless. So see, now Paul kind of explains some of his persecutions. Again, the weaknesses that is here is, uh, is pretty remarkable here. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. And he goes through this kind of list here, here uh, and again, he has been, he has been sarcastic as he says, these people are not servants of Christ. They don't even know Christ. How can they be a servant of Christ? It's remarkable. I would say most people who claim the title Christian are not Christian. Christianity is still the largest, the largest religion in the world. But how many of them really know Christ? who know the Lord, who have a relationship with him, whose sins have actually been forgiven. So they claim to be servants. Paul proves that he was a servant of Christ by how? By serving. (laughs) You know, you can claim all day I'm a servant of Christ, but if you are abusing people, you're no servant of Christ. And he goes through, this is some ways by which he, he served here. He far more in labors. That idea of labor is working to the point of sweat and exhaustion. He exhausted himself for the church. These false teachers love their ease. That's the reason why they're doing what they do. Far more in imprisonments. Uh, Paul, had, in, in the book of Acts, records some of Paul's imprisonments in Jerusalem, Caesarea, Rome, and a second time in Rome. Uh, and the only one that had taken place at this point in time 
uh, was the one that happened in Philippi at the very beginning of the, uh, the European ministry here. Clement of Rome says that Paul was imprisoned seven times. Now, and these prisons did not have Wi-Fi, right? They did not have gymnasiums. They did not have air conditioning. They were dungeons filled with rats and lice and filth. And that's, Paul, just that would be enough, wouldn't it? Of how much he has demonstrated that he is a servant of Christ. But he was beaten times without number. He was punched, abused, kicked around. So many times he can't even remember it. You know, I've been hit a few times in my life, and I can remember it. Can you imagine being hit so many times you can't even come up with a number? Same thing here. Uh, often in danger of death. Would you not remember the times that you've been in danger of, of death? And he gives some example here. Five times, uh, he kind of breaks it down a little bit further. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. You remember the... This comes from the Levitical law code that if someone is a blasphemer or in sin, whatever, they are to receive 40 lashes. And so that they don't exceed the law, they would, they would only give them 39 just in case they miscounted or something like that. So he received that five times he received lashes from the Jews. Three times he was beaten with rods. That's the Gentile Roman punishment. They didn't whip you with a whip. They hit you with rods, okay? So three different times he received those punishments. Even though he was a Roman citizen, he should have been exempt uh, from beating. But now think about that. Paul was beat by the, uh, by the uh, Jews five times. He was beat by the Gentiles. At this point in time, it goes on. He, he gets more of it. Beat by the Gentiles three times. And yet every time he went to a city in Europe, he started at the synagogue. And he preached the gospel to the Jews. And then he would preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He was the apostle of the Gentiles. Knowing it's very likely it's going to lead to a, a beating. We're hesitant because we don't want to be embarrassed. We're hesitant to ex uh, give the gospel to someone to explain the truth of, of our Savior because it might be awkward and yet he knowingly, when he ever, wherever he took the gospel, he knew he could end up being whipped or beaten wherever he went. And because of his zeal, his service, his genuine love, as opposed to the false apostles, Southern Europe was reached for the gospel. And then he was stoned here. Yeah, now, we actually know what happened here. This happened in Lystra, where it says in Acts 14, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. Paul was an athlete. He didn't mention that. That's not a word he used. But can you imagine he was stoned by a mob? And if it had been a, a judicial decree, they would have made sure he was dead. But they stoned him to the point where they thought he was dead. The apostles came, probably, um, the disciples came probably to bury him. And he gets up and walks to the next city. Now, that's the strength of the Lord, isn't it? And it's interesting, as I recall, before this, that same crowd was trying to worship him, right? Thinking that they were Zeus. He could have mentioned, I refuse to be worshipped. The apostles, the false apostles would have loved to have been worshipped. So he's, he's going on, he is boasting about his weakness, and he will continue to, to do so. And it's pretty remarkable because if he just wanted to show his resume, remember who Paul was. Paul was the expression we use, the young Turk of the Pharisees. He was the toast of the town. He was the one everybody talked about. His zeal for the Lord was unsurpassed. 
And then even after being converted, he was the, the chief in the sense of all the apostles. You could say Peter was too, but Paul kind of exceeds Peter's uh, ministry in so many ways. So the false, false teachers had nothing on him. They wanted to show off their resume. He just showed everybody his scars. Which one is more believable, right? So he is, uh, uh, he, he, this is all in keeping with the Lord Jesus told him when he was saved in Damascus after that, uh, that amazing vision that he had on the road and after being blind for three days. It was said that he is chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I think that's one reason why the conversion of the Apostle Paul was so extraordinary is because he was taken with such zeal and hatred. Truly, we would label him today a terrorist. He wanted to wipe out Christianity. He has this vision, which the rest of us don't have. He's blind for three days. And I think it had to be that way, partly because his zeal against Christianity was so powerful. But part of it, too, was God, God making it so miraculous as to prepare him for all the suffering that he would have to go through. All the suffering he would have to go through. I will show him. That's actually part of his commissioning. When I, got, um, when I received my doctorate degree, the, the, the keynote speaker, the president of RTS, uh, preached on the passage in uh, Isaiah with Isaiah's vision, right? And, uh, and, you know, here, who, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And you remember God's response? You go, and boy, they're going to get verted left and right, and we're going to start churches everywhere. Was that his response? No. What was his response? You go, and they will not listen. I mean, here we are. We're all excited. We got our degrees, and we're just ready to go out and make all the different. And basically, the keynote speaker says, they will not listen. They will not listen. Some will. Some will. But by and large, they will not listen. And Jesus is starting off Paul's ministry. You're going to really suffer. You're going to really suffer. But how many people did Paul cause to suffer? How many people died? How many people's children were taken away from? How many people had all their possessions taken away? It's, God is a God of justice in so many ways. So anyway, I love how he closed out the Galatians. You know, Galatians is like a mini version of Romans, but Paul wrote it when he was mad. Uh, and he closes out the Galatians. <laughs> From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear the body, the, on my body the brand marks of Jesus. So he's trying to, he's kind of pointing out his scars to the Corinthians to get them to listen. But for the, the Galatians, he's basically saying, y'all just shut up and obey. I'm tired of all these scars. All right. So we see here Paul's peril. He keeps going on here. Uh, about, uh, about in verses 25, the end of 25 through 27 here. Uh, and, and he's basically, these are all difficulties related to travel at the time. And we think about persecutions and we think about people trying to get you because you're a Christian. But just daily ministry, just going from one city to another was a profound peril. That's still the case in a lot of the mission fields, that sort of thing here. He says, three times he was shipwrecked, a night and a day spent in the, in the deep. Now, by the way, this was written before the famous shipwreck on the island of Malta. They actually have in Malta today, there's St. Paul's Bay, where he floated up. And then was bitten by a snake. You remember that when he didn't mention the snake? Oh, finally, we made it to the shore. A snake bites him. You know, I think I would have given up by that time. 
But so, so basically, if you add the mall to one, he actually had four shipwrecks, and in one of them, he floated for 24 hours. I have been on frequent journeys. The exhaust, think about how travel exhausts you. Now, I know they didn't have jet lag. I don't know if they have chariot lag, you know, but, uh, you know, just the idea. But they walked everywhere with sandals. Dangerous, uh, uh, basically, uh, dangerous with rivers. You know, there were a few bri- bridges at that time, uh, uh, and uh, there were a lot. Floods were, were, were frequent. You would have these uh, floods all of a sudden coming down from the mountains and cause uh, dangers here. Uh, uh, local heroes, Mance Jolly, you know, Mance Jolly, uh, uh, Confederate who wouldn't take the loaf of allegiance and just because uh, all of his sons, his brothers got killed during the war. Uh, I may end up regret using this illustration, but I'm halfway through it. <laughs> Let me keep going. He starts killing Union troops. He eventually flees to Texas. The guy survived the war. He survived all of that crazy stuff he did afterwards. And then he ends up drowning, fording a river. So this is the kind of thing that happened all the time. So dangerous from, dangerous from robbers, especially in those mountain areas between Pergian and Pisidian uh, Antioch and the Taurus Mountains. They were just filled with robbers and that kind of thing. Dangerous from my comp- countrymen. The, uh, there are at least six recorded plots of the Jews against Paul. Dangerous from Gentiles. There are at least three uh, in- perilous encounters uh, with Gentiles here. Dangerous in the city. Practically everywhere he visited, he was just waiting to get beat up. Dangers in the wilderness, exposure, of course, that kind of thing. But there were wild animals still living back in those days. I mean, bears and lions and snakes and such. Dangers in the sea, of course, he's already mentioned. Dangers among false brethren. He was, he was often betrayed. He couldn't exactly know. It's amazing for a man who didn't know whether he could trust himself to somebody, how trusting he was because he trusted in the Lord. Dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, probably due to travel difficulties and uncomfort, or also staying up all night in, in prayer. Hunger and thirst, often without food. So here's a guy that planted the Church of Europe. And yet there were times he didn't have enough food because of situations like the Corinthians. He wasn't going to charge the Corinthians. He let other churches fund his ministry there, and sometimes he ran out, or he couldn't have access in his travel. They didn't have, you know... Uh, Bucky's or QT back then, and cold and exposure, and he goes on. Then we see Paul's pastoral con- uh, burdens here. And this, actually, with all of that, I mean, that's pretty extreme, right? Uh, and, and we've probably, to a certain degree, experienced maybe a little bit something, sort of parts of that, especially if you were ever a Boy Scout or in the military or something. You, you experience some discomfort, right? But it's the pastoral burdens that might have been the worst and the most difficult for him. You see those in verses 28 through 29. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me for concern of the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? This mental strain would have been the most difficult at all. This idea here of intense concern uh, is, is from the verb to mean set on fire, to be inflamed this is what happens. The heart of a true pastor, when he hears someone in his congregation is in sin. Or, you, or th- that a marriage is, is close to divorce or that a children is rebellion. You just burn within in, in, a, in an anger, in a righteous indignation, but also in just a, a, a consuming burden. Y'all know what this is like. We've all had friends who have gone away. We've all had maybe children or grandchildren who've disappointed us. This is what the Apostle Paul feels. Now, you, you take what you feel and multiply it by thousands. Paul's praying for these folks constantly. He literally knew thousands of Christians because he introduced them to 
to the Lord. And he went back uh, on occasion going back to visit his churches and that kind of thing. He's really trying to emphasize here a, a, a motherly and even fatherly, uh, motherly uh, concern and empathy. He told the Thessalonians, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. That's the kind of love. Boy, I tell you, I aspire for that kind of love and just fail. You know, our, our community just works against that kind of love because that kind of love involves vulnerability. It involves time. It involves commitment. And it seems like everything that we have in our culture insulates us from those things. But Paul was, was all in when it came to relationships within the church. The church was the center of the world uh, for him. And then he talks about these, uh, this problem with these false teachers. And they would often try to exploit the weaknesses of the people instead of weeping over it. And that's what false people do. That's what scammers do, right? They, they, they exploit weaknesses. I was talking to a man the other day that um, got a phone call or a text saying that uh, uh, this, was, this man's a grandfather. Your, uh, your grandson has been injured and is afraid to say anything to his father because he's embarrassed. So if you will send me the money, I will give it to him to help pay for his medical bills. And then the grandfather calls his son the boy's son, and says, has he been injured? He goes, no, he's fine. He's right here. How evil is that? I got a, a Facebook message from years ago. Hey, I am, I am in, uh, in uh, Cambodia right now on a missions trip. My money's been cut off. Can you please send us some fun? Evil. Evil. Well, how much more evil is it when you put the name of Jesus on that scam? And that's what Paul's having to deal with. They would take advantage of the weakness. Paul wept for the weakness. And then you see his particular example here. This is interesting because with all that Paul went on in his life, of all the things that he struggled with and went through, of all his weaknesses that he's been exemplifying here, he picks the one where he was lowered out of Damascus in a basket. I don't think any of us, but that would have been the one we picked but there's reason why. Let me read that to you. Paul's particular example, verses 30 through 33. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Atreus, the king was guarding the city of the, uh, the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. A lot of people who don't know doctrine and don't know the Bible do know this one because it's a big flannel graph. You know, Paul going down in the basket. And you know, let's put Paul in the basket for the kids' Sunday school classes here. But, but, but here he brings out this, in, this particularly humiliating uh, instance here. Basically, this probably occurred uh, after Paul was converted. He, he went off to Arabia for three years, was discipled evidently by the, the Lord. He knew Damascus. He went back to Damascus. And that's probably when this occurred, when you connect what he says about it in Galatians and uh, in, in Acts. But it, what's interesting here is about the location. What's significant about Damascus? What else is significant? Well, that's where Paul got saved. So here he is, he's going initially to Damascus as the triumphant Jew who's going to crush out Christianity. He meets the Lord on the road, he gets his early discipleship there, and then he ends up going through this experience where because the Jews are so jealous of him, he, they stir up the city officials and they're trying to kill him, so he has to be, can't go out the gate, 
has to be lowered down in a basket. He, what he's, that is a humiliating situation for a middle-aged man, right? Again, what's the point? He's boasting about his weaknesses. He's boasting about his weaknesses. I do this, uh, of all the sermons I've preached here, there were two that were just terrible. One was terrible because it was just boring. It was the history of the Puritans. It was just boring. Another one was terrible because I was trying something new and utterly failed, and, and it was a good lesson on not to be cute. Uh, and uh, regrettably, we had about like five or six visiting pastors there. Some of you will remember this. Um, I still have nightmares. But I mean, I knew it was terrible in the middle of it. I had this creeping sweat on the back of my, but I had to finish it, right? You know, so every now and then I will remind you about that because those are the kind of things that happen in your life to help keep you humble. And if I didn't remember it, Elder Galleon would remind me of it all the time. The, fa- the famous Babylon Bee sermon, you know. But it's not a bad thing to really blow it in front of people sometimes. It keeps you from being cocky and depending on your own smoothness. Or blow it lots of times, as we sometimes do uh, in our church. I like what D.A. Carson, how he summarizes this, uh, what must have been going on emotionally with the Apostle Paul during the situation. This toast of high rabbinic circles, this educated and sincere Pharisee, this man who had access to the highest officials in Jerusalem, slunk out of Damascus like a criminal, lowered in a ke- like a catch of dead fish in a basket whose smelly cargo had been displaced. He's boasting his weaknesses. And then he supports this idea with a vow here. He says, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. We've seen two or three vows recently in the Apostle Paul. The vows are appropriate uh, when they're sincere and when you, uh, when you keep them here. So all this, Paul can triumphantly claim, just claim like we can through all of our weaknesses in Romans chapter 8. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One more point. I know I'm going long. I kind of had to. Uh, One more point here, but you you don't want to miss this one. So uh, if I'm losing you, wake up to this one because this is where Paul gets to go to heaven, right? Paul's prophetic vision in verse, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on on visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who's 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into the paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, what's interesting here, he's probably addressing this particular issue. This is why it connects with the other ones. Because these false prophets were going about all these mystical visions that they had had. All these things God had told them that they are now teaching the Corinthian church. Now, folks, if you think that stopped, you're crazy. This kind of stuff happens all the time. I have a word from the Lord, and he said, we got to do this, and we got to say, we got to do this, and he says, you ought to do this, and this kind of thing. Well, this kind of manipulation was going on here. Well, Paul says, I can tell you what, they may have a testimony about that, but I literally was taken up into heaven at one point in time. And yet, you can see this bothers him. He actually refers to himself in the third person. I know a man. 
But we know he's talking about Paul, but he just, he's tired of using the personal pronoun. This kind of boasting wears him out. So he's been boasting about his weakness, but now he's going to talk about this extraordinary vision that he had here. Now, we know of six different visions that are recorded in the book of uh, Acts that the Apostle Paul had where the Lord came and, uh, and, and comforted him and, and ministered to him. Uh, but he kind of mentions this one because he's having to combat these false teachers who are claiming similar kind of experiences here. He doesn't know whether he was out of the body or it was just his soul that went up, in, but he went to the third heaven. Now, let me help you here. What's the third heaven? Well, the sky is the first heaven where the birds fly. The second heaven is the stars and the planets and that kind of the thing we, we can see. The third heaven is the abode of God, uh, heaven, right? What we would call heaven. But I love it, too, because he uses the term paradise uh, as a synonym for the word heaven here. Now, this is a beautiful thought. The word paradise, which we see in the Garden of Eden, right? Jesus said the thief on the, to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. The, 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 the background of that word that's used for paradise is actually a Persian term. And it's a term for a beautiful walled garden. So we like that thought. That's what heaven's going to be like, a beautiful walled garden. But not only that, that it, in the Persian mentality at the time, if a king were to invite you to walk with him in the beautiful walled garden in the paradise, it was the supremest honor. And that's what God does for us. He invites his children to walk with him in paradise like he did with Adam before the fall. So Paul was taking up there. This happened 14 years before the writing of this letter, somewhere in the, the 40s or early 50s here. Not exactly sure what, what part of ministry Paul experienced this. But he says here that he heard words inexpressible, which is man is not permitted to speak. Notice this. He doesn't talk about what he saw. People who claim these kind of experiences are always want to talk about what they saw. He actually heard words because God works through words, i.e. the Bible. But he won't. He's not allowed to tell you what those words are. If this is just among other things, this is a little lesson on be wary of people who make all these mystical claims. This is all you need. This is all you need. Our faith is based on the character of God, not some claim that someone was taken up into the third heaven. Years ago, we were trying to, try, trying to plant a church in Columbia 35, 40 years ago. And in the middle of this service, we only had like 25 people there meeting in a hotel room. This guy stood up and said, I was taken up into the third heaven and I saw again and all this kind of stuff. And we were like, excuse me, this is not a cult. <laughs> you, know, you might go somewhere else uh, for that. So be warned. Paul has this experience, but he just has to, he has to emphasize it. But he's never said anything about it before either. This is the first time he's ever re revealed here about what's going on here. So. Humble boasting, boasting in weaknesses. That's really, that really is kind of a, uh, a characteristic of the Christian. We realize, you know, I, I don't know how people get this idea that Christians are so proud. If anything, we, we are extremely humble because we know we're losers. We're sinful people. We, could, we cannot earn our right to heaven. No one can. And we need a savior. And that's really what Paul is trying to bring the Corinthians back to. You got all these, all these professional sophists and all these people trying to convince you of many things. They are actually abusing you. Go back to the gospel. You're a sinner saved by the grace of God. And I, Paul, am an example 
of the weakest of the weakest and the chief of all sinners. So Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. Father, we thank you, God, that you remind us so often of our weaknesses. And uh, some of us perhaps have prayed for years that you would help us to get rid of these weaknesses that so often plague our life and plague our character and plague our mind. And we don't always realize how beneficial it is to not have our acting fully together, to be people who are weak. And even for those who seem to be strong on the outside, their weakness might come in pride. So I pray, God, that you would help us to boast on our weaknesses because in so doing, we are boasting on the grace of our God. And we adore that grace. We are people who need mercy. We are people who need help. And we thank you, God, that you've not left us without that help. But 2,000 years ago, you sent the Son of God to die in weakness on a cross that he could be raised and sit at the right hand of God and open up the gates of paradise that we could walk with our God in the garden. I pray, God, that you would help us to have a holy confidence because the recognition of our weaknesses. In Christ's name, amen.